watchers in the fourth dimension. Rebuilding a planet from the very beginning. It's a wonderful idea. Hello, you are listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And we are the Masters of Earth. Welcome back to those of you who are rejoining us, and a very special welcome to those of you joining us for the first time. This is our 10th episode. We are talking about the Dalek invasion of Earth. You can go back and hear our first nine episodes on the podcasting app of your choice. We will start with a little bit of history. This story came out just after Harold Wilson had become Prime Minister of the UK. He was making some quite radical changes. Uh, he'd put a 15% surcharge on all imported manufactured goods to address the UK's trade deficit. They uh, had two votes of no confidence in the government uh, in very quick succession. Harold Wilson wanted the UK to be a world power. On top of that, they actually voted to abolish the death penalty in the UK for the next five years during the broadcast of the story. On the international scene, uh, we had J. Edgar Hoover attempting to engage in some character assassination on MLK. <laughs> Almost three weeks later, MLK got the Nobel Peace Prize, so uh, good job, Edgar. <laughs> You suck. The situation between the West and the East is there's, there's a period of detente. Brezhnev is trying to repair relations between the Soviet Union and China. We also see the US and the Soviet Union and China really agreeing to not use nuclear weapons against each other, which is kind of cool. Behind the scenes on this one. Well, we have Terry Nation coming back for the third of his 11 Doctor Who stories. He, of course, created the Daleks in his first one. This story was directed by Richard Martin. This is his third directorial credit, His actually his first full story. He had previously directed episodes 3, 6, and 7 of The Daleks, and episode 1 of The Edge of Destruction. Incidental music was provided by Francis Chagrin. This was his only contribution to Doctor Who, but he was actually a very accomplished composer by the time he came to the show, and by the time he passed away in 1972 at the age of 66, he composed over 200 film scores and as, as well as work for TV and commercials. Much to his chagrin. Much to his chagrin. And then finally, as, as designer on this one, we have Spencer Chapman. This is his first Doctor Who credit. He'll return once more for the Space Museum, and his work can also be seen on a number of other kind of cult shows, Sherlock Holmes, The Wednesday Play, Zed Cars, Shoestring, and, and Tales of the Unexpected. So we've got some, some returning names and some new names behind the scenes on this one. Let's move into discussing the story. Our plot summary this week is with you, Mr. Dontavius Smith. Earth, the year 21 <laughs> something or other. The Daleks have returned. An earlier point of time, yet somehow more advanced. With their army of Chinese knockoff Cybermen, they enslave humanity and force them to dig a hole to the center of the Earth so they can blow up the Earth's magnetic core and replace it with engines. In this, the weirdest episode of Pimp My Ride ever. Meanwhile, <laughs> having eschewed violence, the Doctor decides to give child abandonment a try and leave Susan with literally the first man who has shown any interest in her. <laughs> Wow. Oh, boy. I don't even know what to say to that. That is Bravo. pretty much all true. <laughs> yeah. All right. So b before we start discussing the episodes themselves, just a bit of background on, on the story. The Daleks, the first Dalek serial in season one was really the runaway success of that season that really secured Doctor Who's survival. And in that time, we've had a lot of 
different pieces of Dalek memorabilia appearing in pop culture. Way back in June, when the Aztecs was airing, they published a book called The Dalek Book. That was a collection of stories that were meant to really capitalize on their popularity. The first Doctor Who novel, which was a retelling of, of that first Dalek story, was published at the beginning of November 1964. So about three weeks before this aired was Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks, which was written by script editor David Whittaker. And while this was airing, a band called The Go-Go's released a novelty single called I'm Gonna Spend My Christmas with a Dalek. <laughs> so we're in the middle of Dalek mania and they haven't even appeared twice yet until now. So moving into the story, we start with episode one, World's End. Good opening. It piques the interest. I mean, you see the what we later find out to be the robo a roboman walking towards the Thames. And that wonderful sign in the background about dumping bodies in the river. It's very dystopian, very kind of unusual and creepy. And it immediately sets your brain alight wanting to ask questions of what's going on. It definitely piques your interest. Very atmospheric episode. I love how immediately after we see that sign, mm -hmm. the Roverman dumps himself in the river. And then how do we get our big entrance for the Dalek later on? Coming out of the river. So the conclusion is rivers are dangerous. <laughs> then like the river's not really mentioned too much more after that. That's true. It's only set up at the beginning. And I feel like it's, I mean, it's set up for that, that entrance. I mean, I think the idea was people love the Daleks, but we recognize the fragility of the, the actual costume how about have it coming out of water that shows that it actually might have a little bit you know strength and endurance it's not gonna rust <laughs> so i know we're obviously cutting out a lot of stuff in the middle of this particular episode but i think one thing to keep in mind is they went into overdrive on the publicity that it was made very well known that the daleks were coming back so you have all these kids tuning into this first episode gleefully expecting the daleks and they're made to wait until the very closing shot which is really funny I mean, the whole episode is structured like they're almost setting up a mystery. And you've got the Robo-Men who are, frankly, kind of rubbish. But they're setting up all this atmosphere and this mystery. But in their marketing, if they know the Daleks are coming, it's just a delay tactic. You've got kids looking at the watches going, come on, we're the Daleks. You gotta get that entrance just right. I completely agree. One of the frustrating things is every single time they step out of the TARDIS just about, they're like, oh, look, it's London. And I'm like... You do this every time, guys. <laughs> Haven't you learned this by now? <laughs> so, Susan and the collapse of the bridge. We want to touch on the controversial line from the Doctor. The much maligned, <sighs> what you need is a jolly good smacked bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I will I will not make a joke about that's why he left her with David. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, it's so out of place for the Doctor. I mean, where have... I mean... He has, like, called her child before in a very, like, you know, disciplinary, disciplinary manner. I don't know. It just seems like that's such a jump for him. What I find so interesting about that is when the first Doctor comes back in um, Twice Upon a Time, it's used to kind of imply extreme misogyny, whereas I think here it's kind of extreme parenting. Not that I think that's a good thing, but, you know, I think it's later somewhat taken out of context because he, in Twice Upon a Time, he says it to Bill, and, and that's not quite the same relationship that he has with Susan. There was actually a nice moment between the Doctor and Ian right after the bridge fell and everything like it's like oh yeah they're they actually are getting along more often which yeah. is great yeah yeah absolutely did they know that caroline ford was how how much of a heads up did the writers have about her leaving the show it seems like it would have been a little bit more organic 
and they could have set up something in her relationship with the doctor a few serials ago to build up to this serial. They really crammed a lot of the doctor basically infantilizing her into this. I mean, there was a little bit of it in the sensorites, but in this, it's just hell-bent for leather. So they decided a little while before they made this one that they were going to get rid of either Susan or Barbara. <gasps> yeah, and eventually they decided, well, we can't really get rid of Barbara. So they made their choice. I mean, I don't fault them on the choice that they made, but it's also the fault of their own when they couldn't write her correctly. From my understanding, Carolyn Ford had complained about how Susan was being characterized. She had. With regards to Susan... Sandifer makes some really good points. She often talks about how Susan basically holds the Doctor back. The role of the companion is really to push the Doctor into having fun as a hero. As long as Susan is there in the TARDIS crew, she's basically... She makes it so that his primary motivation is to shelter and protect her. So she stunts the growth of the character it, from what we would know in modern day Doctor Who as the Doctor. From Sanders' perspective, Susan has to go. You know, that could just be considered a character trait for the first Doctor. But I understand the point. It does limit the writing where we've put so much emphasis on the Doctor wanting to be the surrogate parent since it's his granddaughter. I mean, obviously we'll discuss the rest as we go along, but the first Doctor has more time without Susan than he does with Susan. And I think we're going to have a lot more fun with him once Susan is gone. Going back to World's End, did anyone else absolutely adore all of the location filming? Oh, completely. Eat your I heart mean, out 28 days later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the first time the show has done any major location filming, and I was sitting there thinking, this just feels so much bigger than anything we've seen before. The, the sense of scale is huge. I think the key word in this serial is scope. Everything is bigger and not just in the way that they, they write it, but they actually show it. The, the scope of showing us the, the level of, of threat is actually, I think, one of the bigger ones that we've seen, um, especially from the perspective that it is Earth that's being threatened. So I think that's interesting, too. One thing I noticed was we see Battersea Power Station in ruins. Personally, growing up in London in the 90s and, and the 2000s, I mean, Battersea Power Station was in ruins by that time. But in 1964, it was still a fully functioning power station. So for someone watching this at the time, they would have seen that and gone, oh, wow, L London really is decimated. And that's really cool. And some of us just went, hey, look, they cut to that Pink Floyd Animals album cover. Neat. <laughs> Waiting for the floating pig. Huh? Yeah, we've kind of jumped around a little bit. I do want to say that in this episode, actually in a few of these episodes, but especially in this one, the Bechdel test was passed again. Woo! I'm so happy. That's why I'm a little sad that Susan is leaving because... When you have both Barbara and Susan, you at least have an opportunity to have that happen. Because for the most part, whenever they have, you know, guest characters, most of them are male. On the occasion, that it, this is an exception. We have Jenny, and Jenny actually has some good moments um, with Barbara as well. But it's very difficult when you have so, fem 
few female characters to to get to this point where we can actually talk with no, not mentioning men. Slight spoilers, Julie. We do get a replacement for for Susan in time. <sighs> Who's better? Much better. <laughs> <laughs> but still, it's just it's one of those things that we're at least having the two of them allowed for this opportunity. You mentioned Jenny, who at this point in the narrative where we're talking about we haven't met yet, but Jenny was originally intended to be Susan's replacement and was originally going to leave with the Doctor at the end of the story, and obviously that didn't happen, but you know, they clearly decided that having that additional female companion, ha- having two in the TARDIS, was really important. Can I mention again at that point in time, though, was again... They were trying to fix a swollen ankle with water. <laughs> with a, a cold-wrapped yeah. bandage. And to skip forward an episode, Jenny actually asked him, why didn't you wrap her ankle in a wet cloth? Yes. I Googled this because I'm, I'm curious, because it seems to be such common knowledge, and I can't find anything. It's the, uh, the miracles of Thames water. Oh. <laughs> yeah. The, the Doctor and Ian go off to explore and to find a, a torch, you know, a, 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 to melt the bridge that's blocking their way from the TARDIS, and uh, Barbara and Susan stay behind. I- Once again, I think it's here that the Doctor and Ian also bond over using, you know, some sort of fire or destruction, just like they did on Planet of the Giants. Basically, we're at the point in the episode where our TARDIS crew gets separated. Classic! This is always such a good idea, guys. Let's just keep doing it. But we do get some great shots of Barbara running. We do. <laughs> With that drum music? Yes! This was the drums, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. High drum music. The music and the shots, the location shooting, it, to me, it just felt so different to anything we've seen up to this point, and I loved how it felt. It it felt so fresh. So while Barbara and Susan are getting rescued by people, the Doctor and Ian are exploring this warehouse and come across a roboman who is dead, and they're being followed by someone. And Ian is randomly carrying around a whip. Like you do. I'm sad that. that he didn't hold on to it for the rest of the, you know, serial. It's fine. So back to our early theme of Indiana Jones connections. <laughs> New fan theory, Ian was the inspiration for Indiana Jones. <laughs> And also, he was actually Jack the Ripper. <laughs> that that checks out. I I trust Jack the Ripper more than Indiana Jones because he is a scientist, not an archaeologist. Ooh. And then we, we, we see our first shot of the flying saucer. Which I didn't hate. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hate it. I didn't say it was marvelous. It, it was from the Ed but... Wood School of Special Effects, but I didn't care. <laughs> I, I loved how wobbly it was, honestly. I, I'm actually kind of surprised, you know, when I always think about it, like, you know, if you were to imagine, like, how iconic the Dalek design is, that you would think that the spaceship for the Daleks would be something also at least off of that main With idea, a plunger? But just to have just a... <laughs> Flying saucer? Flying well, toilet if bowl. Only we'd had Ray Cusick as designer on this and not Spencer Chapman. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think for me, the problem with this was you see all that loca- location shooting and it's just phenomenal. And then it cuts to this little wobbly model 
<laughs> on a string and it's just so jarring well you can see where their budget went i mean one of my favorite things through the serial was you see things in the background that say vetoed which within the story it's rebel code but in actuality the designers had put forth hey this is what we want the set to look like and they were told hey we don't have the budget for that so they stamped vetoed on top of it so being <laughs> epic smart asses they just blended that into the serial and i love it I love that too, actually. But speaking of the Rebels, we eventually get to Barbara and Susan meeting Dr. Strangelove. I am so glad you mentioned that because when I think about that character, I was like, okay, let me let me grab all this in. He's in a wheelchair. He has glasses. He is a resistance leader. And we're kind of dealing with like an invasion or war of Britain kind of situation. We're not too far off of World War II. This character is the amalgamation of FDR Winston Churchill and Dr. Strangelove because of his little crazy little bomb invention. I love how in that initial scene, he rocks up with a knife and it's like, dude, what are you going to do? You're in a wheelchair. <laughs> yeah. That's that's very ableist of you. And I would like to apologize to all of our listeners. I'm sorry. If any I'm of our listeners person. that are in wheelchairs that have knives, if you want to prove yourself to, if you want to prove yourself to Anthony, just try to stab him. Come rolling up at top <laughs> speed. Just impale him. He <laughs> had it coming. It. Yeah. He had it coming. Um, we would hereby like to apologize for everything we just said. So we meet that rebel, and then basically they're getting jobs of what they can do. And so Barbara says, oh, hey, I can cook. And so they're like, all right, that's something useful that you can do. And so then when she turns to Susan, Susan says, I think the best thing I've ever heard was, what do you do? And she's like, I eat. <laughs> and that I was thought that was phenomenal. Really it was really nice so little sass good. coming from... <laughs> Right <laughs> I, I was I was sitting there though as soon as they were like hey Barbara can you cook I was like oh my god it's literally to the kitchen with you woman this yeah. whole cereal and we'll get into it with the later episodes of the cereal there is a lot of uh, promotion of what is considered to be at the time the societal norm of what a woman's role is in the home that is really pushed in the face of the audience in a in a and now at our period of time a very laughable manner a woman's place is in the home impersonating a dalek <laughs> while all of this is going on we cut back to ian and the doctor who made it back to where the tardis is ian's the one who makes the plague connection with the poster i don't know why that wasn't the character who's already been established as a history teacher but you know who am i to judge and they get apprehended by the Roboman. I don't know about everyone else, but the way that scene was shot, I thought was just wonderful. I thought that was so creepy. I agree. I like the design for the Roboman. Not a big fan of how they were told to deliver their lines. They don't sound robotic. They sound like they are drunk and sleepy. I'm going to have to disagree in that any time a Roboman was on screen, I would begin laughing. <laughs> <laughs> it was like you spent all this budget on everything else like oh well we need the roboman uh i got a trash can i got a bicycle helmet. yeah <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> uh we'll give them some shirts with dalek graffiti on them i could get past it it's just when they were giving lines i just i could not oh 
if it had been well executed and they delivered it in such a manner that you actually thought they were creepy, then I think it would have been a fine design because it would have just been as simplistic as you could get of how can we control them with this headgear. But yeah, I think it's the execution that's the problem. When I look at it, it seems like it's a incredibly drunk person that's worried about falling or having something hit them in the head, and that's why they're wearing the bicycle helmet. I feel like they're much better realized in the movie version of this, but we're, we're still a couple of years away from that. And of course, Ian and the Doctor are held by them, and we finally see a Dalek. And we're into episode two, conveniently entitled The Daleks, not to be confused with that first serial also called the daleks <laughs> i love the doctor's interaction with the dalek the dalek showing up made his day <laughs> you're absolutely right because he there's been so many times where he's been very discouraging but i've never seen the doctor so optimistic he's optimistic he's sassy he's just it's it's a wonderful little scene and i'm just like you own it and it's awesome he looks like a kid that thought he was going to a dentist appointment and his parents actually took him to disney world he is thrilled that the daleks have taken over earth because now he gets to mess with them i know and it's a great little twist because when you think about like how daleks have been built up with these like tremendous villains and they're the big big baddies of the show and to write your hero to be like oh this is gonna be fun like this is gonna be great it really empowers your your, your hero and makes them seem even stronger than before this is the actually the moment that Sandifer pinpoints as when the Doctor becomes the Doctor. While he's kind of decided in a couple of stories before to, you know, stick around and try and make things right, this is the first time he's confronted with, you know, an enemy and just says, I must stop them. And he's gone from, you know, at the beginning of the series where he wanted to brain someone with a rock <laughs> to now saying, oh, yes, they've enslaved humanity. I must, I must defeat them. The Daleks' reaction, two things on this from my perspective. One, the way it just repeats itself over and over again, it's almost like it's kind of rocking itself back and forth, like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. And <laughs> secondly, the way the line is said, I still, to this day, mishear it as, we are the bastards of Earth. <laughs> that, that sounds like a heavy metal album, but okay. <laughs> But yeah, I, I, just seeing them back, the, the, that entire scene is just so well done. And then we cut back to Susan and Barbara and Dortmund in his wheelchair and Tyler talking about how to try and defeat the Dalek. Dortmund has his new bomb plans, which don't require testing. It'll, it'll work <laughs> fine. I have it in my notes that it will work. Once it's not one of us referring to our notes, it's actually a character <laughs> on the show. That's actually in the show. <laughs> <laughs> i did love how tyler compared it to world war one just people going over the top in the trenches to try and defeat the enemy and at the time you know you think this was 1964 world war one had finished 46 years earlier there were still people whose parents and grandparents had fought in that war so it was still mm -hmm. somewhat fresh in the memory and certainly from a british perspective that war is seen as more devastating than world war ii ever was so that was a nice little parallel i thought and on the other side, we have the Doctor talking about the Daleks and how they ended up on Earth. And he places this in the middle history of the Daleks, even though, as Don pointed out in his little summary, that they were somehow more advanced. I, I'm pretty sure he meant to say this was the middle school of the Daleks, because clearly they were, <laughs> they were smoking a lot of something when they came up with this plan. 
Well, I also love that it's like, well, how do we know they're different? Oh, look, they have this adaptation with this disc on their like back. And I'm like, really? <laughs> this this one little disc is all of a sudden allows them to do all of this stuff? Oh, okay, sure. A little bit of hand waving it. going on there as far as the next one. No, no, see, it's it's fine. It totally makes sense. I don't think any of you guys will be surprised to hear that there's a lot of expanded media. <laughs> Back in, in the early days of internet fandom, we used to call that fan wank. <laughs> <laughs> and... Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff about how this is technically a separate bunch of Daleks from the ones we faced on Scarrow, who were the ones we see in the original serial were were a different faction who broke off and and stayed on Scarrow, while this faction decided to go and explore the universe and conquer other worlds. It it, it gets very tedious, and I, I personally I like to just think of it as this just is the way it is because no one cared about canon at this point in time. They just wanted to see Daleks in London. This is this is really the genesis of the I'll explain later joke. Yes. Because it's like, okay, you can't think too hard about it. This is what we needed for this story to happen. Just go with it. And you know what? Sometimes I kind of miss that. There's so many things nowadays where you have to know all of this background and all of this backstory. And if you don't know it, someone will judge you for it and all this other stuff like it is much simpler to just be like, just accept it and move on. Well, I think at this point, you have to remember that these episodes, when they were being written, there was no expectation of the audience having seen everything they'd gone on before. And there was no way for them to do that. It aired and then it was gone. So if something <laughs> did violate canon, people were much less likely to notice in today's environment, it's different because everything's out on Blu-ray, DVD, streaming, all that stuff. I don't think they were expecting 50 years later that we were going to be continuing um, <laughs> this whole thing. So they weren't expecting 50 years of canon. I know, obviously, there's some empty years there, but, you know, that's a lot more than I think they expected. I was also thinking, like, since this is 1964 uh, in television... The, the thought pattern of serialized television it was probably based off of radio serials. I'm not too certain, but I don't think that radio serials like The Shadow and things like that really concerned themselves too much about, you know, stepping over their own feet with canon mistakes. So we get a nice one where we have Craddock, who I think was the co-captive with the Doctor and Ian talking about the invasion and how it started with meteorites and then a plague and then once the planet had been decimated the daleks show up this made me think of one thing in particular that came before this and and which is the war of the worlds but the version i'm most familiar with is is jeff wayne's musical version that starts with a meteor shower and that's immediately what i went to think of here things like um plague become a terry nation trope he'll use them time and time again in other shows and even again in doctor who so after they talk about the plague, it pans over, back over to, I believe, Susan and Barbara. For some reason, Susan is cleaning a gun, I think, and she's pointing it at her chin, which I just feel like is a bad idea. She's uh, helping David polish his gun. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> oh, boy. 
So back to the Dr. Ian and Craddock. So they find some stuff in their cell. And, you know, they're, they're in a prison cell. So why, why is there random stuff in there? And Craddock is sitting there like, I don't trust this. And the Dr. Ian is like, oh, it must be a key. In case the Dalek <laughs> locks himself in the cell. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. But it was an awesome trap. I think the doctor would have done it anyway just to get to mess with it and figure it out. Absolutely. <laughs> so they get themselves out. Unsurprisingly, they're immediately apprehended by the Daleks who are going to robotize them. Quelle surprise. Just the doctor. Because he's the smart one. Smarty pants himself. Which I find really strange that they select the smart one to be a robo-man. I, I feel like that's not the direction they should have gone. They should choose the, you know, those less intelligent because they can easily manipulate them. They might last longer underneath that control and find some other use for those who are smarter. And of course, we, we will see that they do robotize Craddock, which is quite distressing in the next episode. Just as they're kind of cutting the Doctor off to be robotized, we have Dortmund and, and friends deciding to attack the, the saucer with Dortmund's bombs that will 100% work, guaranteed. Which it's so, it's so bad. It's so bad. They took five minutes to come up with this plan that was, you don't do five minutes of planning and then you're like, all right, let's go. He didn't want to test anything. Like, no, no, it's fine. Totally work. It's not how military planning works. And then on, on top of like the plan being poorly planned you also have the scene itself being what i thought was very poorly directed i just found it confusing and i think it was the first sign of the of the real difference between the occasion shooting and the studio shooting i think action scenes are still problematic and i think they're going to be problematic for a while i think it's partially just the time period and the special effects yeah that's fair but can we talk about the excellent pun that the doctor makes about Boyle's law and boiling this down. Yes, yes we can. Because <laughs> that was amazing. Oh, also just the fact that the doctor thought about Boyle's law, at, you know, since he is, we at this point know that he's not human, so the fact that he knows Boyle's law is kind of impressive. And speaking of the Doctor, while the attack scene is going on, we, we end the episode with the robotization process beginning. No! Which moves us into episode three, the Day of Reckoning. So we start the episode with the Dalek and the, the Roboman starting to perform a procedure on the Doctor, while on the other side of the wall, that's not even a full wall, we have the attack going on and they're just completely oblivious thought it seemed like they kind of knew it was happening but they were like eh i don't think they cared it's nothing i think they're used to crappy attacks happening so now it's just like okay they're not gonna do anything they're gonna attack we're gonna kill them all i got work to do yeah that's what it felt like to me and as i guessed the bombs were useless Yay! Obviously, the Doctor gets rescued here. And a little bit of behind-the-scenes information. This was obviously, like film tends to be filmed, somewhat out of sequence. And while escaping from the source of the ramp, I think, if I recall correctly, collapsed and William Hartnell got injured. So while he's in the rest of this episode, he is mostly missing from episode four because I think he hurt his back. While the, the sorcerer escape was going on and we are just 
the way the action was directed was kind of like the massacre of the Thals in those final scenes of the Daleks. I, I remember in that story oh. I talked about like the yeah. heroic rope Thal. <laughs> <laughs> um, like it's, the, it's just that kind of stuff. Richard Martin is reusing his own direction. There's that. And then by the end of it, Susan has disappeared and is somewhere. We don't know. Ian is somewhere. We don't know. The doctor goes somewhere. We don't know. Like, by the end of this whole thing, we're just like, well, everyone's now split up individually as to as opposed to just in pairs. And basically everyone died. The end. <laughs> Except for me. Oh, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Sorry. Everybody's dead, Dave. The Doctor, Ian, Susan and Barbara obviously survive. And then Dortmund and Tyler. And I think that's about it. Ian stays on the spaceship. The Doctor leaves with Tyler, but then gets separated from him very, very quickly. And the Daleks decide that they're going to destroy London with firebombs because of this attack. Yeah, because it was so dangerous And so effective. <laughs> so threatening. <sighs> Battle over Britain. It, it definitely felt like they were hinting at that. Yeah, and then we get scenes of Daleks traipsing around London in this episode with their suckers in the, in the air. You know, almost like a Nazi salute. <laughs> <laughs> the way they are wandering around with their plunges in the air i mean it, it, yeah. it's not subtle everyone's thinking the same thing they're going oh, around absolutely. basically going heil they're they're not nazis they're just alt-right <laughs> <laughs> oh wow so we have ian on the saucer and he takes down a roboman who turns out to be craddock so yes. they robotized the dude that they were locked up with and Ian kills him. So plus one murder count for Ian. <laughs> and then we pan over to Susan and Susan's with David. <laughs> Not only is it just like a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit of like, I guess, the flirtation going on. And also, obviously, her ankle is doing much better since so she can just kind of run around. But Susan actually gets pretty deep. You know, she's talking about how she feels like she never belongs and things like that. So I think this is really the big start of showing that she's going to be leaving. David even has that line of, there'll be a time when you're forced to stop traveling. Yeah. Wow. In about three Supple, episodes. Guys. Let's Supple. hit us over the head, guys. He, he's just laying the groundwork. He, he had this planned out all along. That's just what we call pillow talk, baby. <laughs> over to Barbara and we get the little tour of London between her, Jenny and Dortmund. And the Daleks. Yeah, and, and the Daleks. <laughs> so you've got the Daleks across the river from Parliament, crossing Westminster Bridge, they're in Trafalgar Square. <laughs> got Barbara, Jenny and Dortmund heading up Whitehall. It's, it's, it's my home city and I love seeing it, but you know, I feel like anything set in London has to have that kind of flyby shot and this does it here. And also I love that they show the Daleks so close to stairs. <laughs> <laughs> like they're like traveling near stairs. And I'm like, oh, you just want to go up those stairs, but you can't. You can't do it. Sorry. Should have shot of a Dalek's sad enemies. little Dalek. Just, you know, it's thing facing downwards right next to the stairs. <laughs> so shortly after this whole chase scene and whatnot, they're talking about some sort of metal or something, and it's, they're like, we call it Dalekanium, I think is what it was called. <laughs> Dalekanium? Dalekanium, yeah. They couldn't be more original than that. 
No. No, they could not. So they're mining for something, but we don't really know what. Right. And so Barbara naturally thinks that the doctor is heading for the mine and Dortmund wants to meet the doctor because he's a fellow scientist. So they're clearly the same. Woo, scientists. Future besties. <laughs> or at least would be future besties. <laughs> had they ever had a scene together. Except he then he then goes on a suicide mission. <laughs> Wait, slightly Eventually. before we get there. So that okay. they're planning his suicide mission and we have a studio scene. And I hate to keep drawing attention to the incompetence of Richard Martin's studio scenes, but there are shadows moving in that scene of things that shouldn't be there. I'm just, I'm just saying, guys. So now we can talk about Dortmund's suicide run. I got the feeling it would have been a little bit different if there hadn't been some rubble separating him from the Daleks, which I must admit, it made me laugh. I'm like, well, we're kind of at a stalemate, aren't we? Except that the Daleks can shoot. <laughs> I really wanted the bombs to work at least once. Just just one time. But alas, that's not what happened. So obviously Dortmund dies and the Daleks close in on their base, even though they've all left, and start questioning a mannequin. <laughs> it did look very suspicious. Wait, I love that scene. I love that scene. It was so amazing. Hard. It also makes sense from a certain perspective because a mannequin is shaped as a human being. So would it not make sense that something that is alien would the first interaction with it would be, oh, you're shaped the same, so you must be one. I get I'm it. Just dis- I'm just disappointed that the Dalek didn't shoot it for not answering it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. Man. You can't have everything. And we end with another bomb, but it's a f- fire bomb. Cliffhanger. Dun dun dun. So the next episode, episode four, the end of tomorrow. We start this episode with the doctor passing out, which is cover for Billy being injured. But it does give an opportunity to try to like you know push forward more David and Susan scenes. Yeah, and an interesting thing here is a lot of the Doctor's lines were given to David because they had to re-script this on the fly. Because suddenly he's like, I can disarm Hmm. this bomb. Yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. And Susan gets a little close to him when he's done. She puts puts her head on his shoulder. That's nothing. Nothing. Well, you know, it's, it's the 60s. She's meant to be chased. Good God, Julie, do you have no values? We all act as if sex didn't happen before marriage back in the 60s, but I'm pretty sure that was incorrect. It didn't happen on TV, and certainly not on Doctor Who. Barbara and Jenny. So this this is taking place sometime in the 22nd century. 21-something, maybe even 22-something. And they are trying to get a truck from 1958. Got <laughs> <laughs> it from a museum. <sighs> So yeah, 1958 was only six years before the story, but 200 plus years before the plot. At this point, we have another nation trope klaxon. The the nation trope we have here is uh, the Daleks using slave labor to mine. They'll come back to this time and time again. Well, you seem there, they don't really have hands to hold pickaxes. I mean, what else are they supposed to do? Pay people? I don't think that's going to happen. They do in food and uh, shelter. Yeah. Anyway, Ian and Larry have made it to the mines. 
and some random guy decides he's going to help them. I actually loved how they did the casting for the extras, especially the minors. For good or bad, they did a really good job of making them look like they were starved, they were worn, they were very skinny, they they looked like they were truly going through a lot of hardship working in those mines. They look haggard as well. Yeah. I don't know, they looked a little too old to be miners to me. That's a Galaxy Quest joke, and I'm not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> As Barbara and Jenny get this this truck going, they drive off and you see the body of Dortmund just lying there as they drive off. And that just seemed very grim to me. Like, yeah, I don't think it was a bad thing, but it was grim. Gotta add some stakes to it, you know? It just feels like with this story, they've really upped the darkness. And we get Susan and David going down to the sewers, leaving the doctor behind. We find out that humanity is not united. And eventually they're reunited with Tyler, who tells them that the sewer is full of scavengers and alligators. I love this idea of alligators in the sewers because this is just something I've heard. It's an urban myth that started in New York. It's never really been real, but it's awesome. I love it. (laughs) And the fact that they decided to go with it and they had it and they had Susan freaking out about it. Yes. And I, I love the video footage they had of that baby alligator. It was adorable. <laughs> Absolutely adorable. While they're down there, we have more subtle foreshadowing when David invites Susan to help him rebuild the planet. Do you think Susan's leaving at the end of this serial? I had foreshadowing. Terry, subtle nation. <laughs> Not at all. In the meantime, while all this is going on, we, we do at one point cut towards the scene we've mentioned of Barbara in the truck. In which, guess what? We pass Bechdel test number two. It is, well, actually number three of the whole serial, but number two of this episode. Because during this whole piece where she's running over Daleks, we don't talk about any men. Oh, It's amazing. But we passed Barbara running over Daleks in a truck test. Come on! All of it. I've got to say, if this episode or this serial came out in modern day, I would absolutely love an iPhone game of where you're Barbara running over dollars in the truck. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Again, we've already acknowledged that Barbara is the best, and yes. this just solidifies that she is the best character on the show right now incidentally at this point i would just like to give out a a shout out to an instagram account i've started following called barbara is always right (laughs) and that's right as in her last name w-r-i-g-h-t it's magnificent so we cut towards ian and larry who very briefly encounter the slither the problem is it looks like something from the first quatermass serial which was nine years earlier I also think the bigger problem is that the alligator seems to pose more of a threat than the slither does. And the alligator is just better shot. I think they were trying to hide things about the slither. They probably put less money into it. (laughs) You know, the alligator was stock footage, whereas the slither, they were like, we don't know what this is supposed to look like. Let's just like eh, throw something together. And I, and I love the concept that the Slither is a pet of the head dog. So would it surprise anyone to learn that there is some quite rampant fan wank around the Slither? Really? <laughs> oh, God. So 
there's there's a story we'll come to in the third doctor's tenure called inferno where they are also drilling to the center of the earth in the hope of discovering a new energy source and it releases this liquid that anyone who comes into contact with gets mutated so one of the various pieces out there is that the slither is a dalek who came into contact with that material and then subsequently mutated further that's not as fun as i wanted it to be that's that's for 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 being a reach julia's right that is not nearly as fun (laughs) as a reach should be it's not really necessary but you know fans are gonna fan also the 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 roar of of the slither is just comically bad i mean the roar is literally you you can hear it it's just a guy like me going raw <laughs> and of course we're, we're back into the sewer before we get towards the end with susan making an absolute ton of noise when she knows there are scavengers down there yeah and she nearly falls to her death at the claws of the adorable baby alligator that we've already mentioned and then our boys tyler and david saved the day and Tyler finds the doctor. I mean, wow. He's back. It all works out. It all seems to work out, at least. We still have two more episodes, but it's fine. We end this one with the Slither closing in on Ian and Larry. And it gets Ashton, who's the, the smuggler they've been talking to, in a really comical way. I love that we didn't really talk about Ashton much because he was kind of a worthless throwaway character. And the Slither kills him, and we'll move on. And the way he's killed, I mean, all I've written here is comical. I can't, I mean, I watched this like two weeks ago, so I don't remember why I said it was comical, but I found it comical. It it was. So we're in the next episode, right? Episode five, The Waking Ally. We start with Ian and Larry trying to escape the Slither. Ian hits it with a rock, and it falls down the mineshaft. So Ian murder count, plus one. He's killed a Rover Man and a Slither. His bloodlust is extreme in this serial. <laughs> and they are conveniently in a waste bucket that gets lowered into the mineshaft in an extremely wobbly way. It could have been done a little bit better, but it's okay. I'll forgive it. So this is the episode that I don't know about everyone else, but I felt this story kind of started feeling a little bloated and padded. Ooh, a little yeah. bit. I mean, there are certain things that needed to happen, though. So we have the Dr. David and Su- Susan hiding from Robo-Men. And they had made a comment earlier that the Robo-Men couldn't make it into the sewer. And, oh, hey, look, they're in the sewer now. So I think there's certain things that they're trying to get through with this episode. But it could have been combined speaking of them being in the sewer so the doctor who we've already kind of said oh no no violence attacks a roboman with his walking stick double standards doc in the meantime we also have barbara and jenny encountering the women in the woods they're crazy nut jobs <laughs> both they're of also, them <laughs> they're also terrible at acting super obvious okay. like what well, you should probably just leave because they they're like clearly the, going to betray you the least convincing performances ever who are immediately suspicious. That whole sequence? No. And that's kind of part of why this is where this story really falls apart for me, is because this is where we switch to mostly studio-based scenes, and Richard Martin just really doesn't seem particularly competent in the studio. At least it's 
this one episode, though, because this is six episodes and it only falls apart at the fifth one. That's pretty good. I don't think it really falls apart. It gets a little creaky, but I admit I like this scene because... As soon as they showed up, I'm like, well, they're going to betray them. I knew what was going to happen, and I was entertained by just watching it unfold. So we flash over to Ian and Larry, and uh-oh, Larry gets hurt getting out of the um, the bucket, I guess they're in, whatever you want to call it. Yep. And then it immediately, like, it keeps going back and forth pretty quickly between Barbara and Ian, because, like, yeah, I knew those crazy ladies were very suspicious people, and then we go right back into, oh no, Larry Brothers the Cyberman. So it just keeps going back and forth pretty quickly. Honestly, the the whole Larry's brother Phil. So we've got Larry and Phil. Phil. So they've got really um, <laughs> great names. <laughs> what are the chances that they come across his brother, who's a Robo Man? I mean, this is 1960s Doctor Who. Pretty damn good. So True. take a look at it from this perspective. So you've had a world that has been hit by meteorites, hit by a plague, and now they're hit by Daleks. And then he knew that his brother went to the mines, which is outside of London. So the fact that he comes across his brother is actually not as surprising. Fair point. So Larry and Phil kill each other because it was never going to end any other way. It was so sad, though. Like, just brothers killing each other? The only way it could have been worse is if they were twins. <laughs> and speaking of people who are close to each other fighting, we then cut to Susan and David having a fight with a fish. It is a very different kind of fight, though. It is. I might not be attracted to someone if they decided to slap me with a fish. Apparently, you're not a Monty Python fan. <laughs> if they pull out a bigger fish and hit you with it, you know it's to be. It's love. Fish fight. So after they have this fish fight and they get, you know, they, they're like, oh, well, we might have touched a little bit too much. Like, we need to, like, back off. Then David and the doctor and they have this other conversation. Susan is completely left out of it. And then at the very end, she's like, oh, hey, do you want this other thing? And it's like they specifically took Susan out of that conversation. Is that the conversation where the doctor's like, you know, Susan's a very good cook? I believe that is. I mean, that was Basically. part of the conversation. There was more to the conversation. They actually talked about some important things about going to the mines or something. I forget what it was. But yeah, then they talked about Susan being able to cook and all that other stuff. Please take her off my hands and take her as a wife. I'm done with her. So we end that conversation and then Ian finds Barbara and Jenny in the mine. And again, we find out that Barbara is better than everyone else on this show. Because she figures out a way to kind of trick the Daleks into, you know, taking her to their leader so that she can have a conversation with them. And really it's just to... I love her. We actually, at this point, truly find out what the Daleks are trying to do. Oh my god, their plan is so bonkers. Did anyone else... (laughs) Pause the episode, laugh for a full five minutes before being able to continue, because I did. I I I I made, like I just sat here and I was like, it is such an inefficient way to one destroy Earth, and what purpose is it to fly Earth around the they're galaxy? Not, they're not destroying it. They're they're turning it into a vehicle. Yeah. Like what what 
purpose does that serve? Like, why is that helpful? I know everyone on on this podcast, um, even if not everyone listening to it, has seen the David Tennant era. And there's a nice little throwaway line in Journey's End, I think, where the Doctor's like, well, the Daleks tried to move the Earth before, but I never knew what for. It's like, okay, Mm. Russell T. Davies, I see what you're doing. You're coming back to this story nearly 50 years later. (laughs) I like that. You you look at this, so they're going to remove the Earth's core, install an engine, and fly it around space why the amount of energy to i said before pimp my planet oh yeah (laughs) jesus all right so we end with ian deciding he's going to hide in the device that he doesn't know is the device that's going to blow up the magnetic core because of course he does because at this point they're still considering ian the hero of the story even though we all know that it's barbara at this point, Ian is the idiot of the story. I'm just going to sit in the weapon. Why not? I'm Ian. <laughs> Although we do find out at the beginning of the next episode, Flashpoint, we do find out that, yes, while Ian is a little bit of an idiot while sitting in the capsule, he can break it while he's within it. By just pulling at random wires. That's actually pretty accurate. <laughs> And what I love is, so the Daleks decide they need to get it back. So we get this really comical scene of the Robomen heaving it with a rope. And I just thought that was awful. They're heaving that with a rope. And then the special effects of just seeing this capsule being like pulled up. And it's just like, they're doing all this giant work. And then you're just seeing like, oh, hey, they're just like pulling up with a string. And Ian <laughs> manages to get out is dangling by a rope, which the Daleks then shoot the rope rather than Ian, and we get that really terrible special effect of him falling down the mineshaft. You say it's awful. Yeah, you're right. And it was, and I love it. (laughs) Yeah, just because it's awful doesn't mean that I am not 100% on board. It's great. And I mean, I I sound mad about it. The realism is, you know, we're all watching this on large widescreen tvs whereas at the time they'd been watching this on tiny tiny screens with i think 425 lines or something like that so it probably wouldn't have looked nearly as terrible as we see it as critical as i am so we cut back to the daleks who refer to their planned genocide as the final solution subtlety Do, do you think maybe Terry Nation is trying to draw a parallel between the Daleks and maybe Chairman Mao? <laughs> oh, no, no, wait, wait, hang on. Who's the other dictator I'm thinking about? Hitler. Do you think he's caught the Nazis? No, maybe? Am I? Uh, is that a stretch? Do you think the Daleks, like, stop for a moment, look at each other and say, are we the baddies? <laughs> oh, no, absolutely not. It is a very classic trope that if a bad guy truly believes that what they're doing is for the best, that they will never think of themselves as the bad guy. So Barbara and Jenny are captured. And Barbara is awesome when she's like, hey, I'm going to tell you the plan. And she just starts spouting off these random historical events. I love some of the choices that she decided to bring in. Didn't she bring in um, Hannibal at one point? Yes, yes, she she did. did. Yes. Oh, it was beautiful. She talks about the Indian mutiny and gets the response of, we are the masters of India. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. 
I think they should do it more often, but Barbara does get to bring back her history piece. Like, she got to do it in the Aztecs, and she got to do it in this episode. And I love that they're able to bring that in, because it really ties in that fact that, yes, yeah, she is, she knows history, and she knows a lot of it, because she brought back a whole bunch of random facts that, you know, were just kind of all over the place. And it it worked. It was great. And then her Jenny are put in the same weird neck restraints that the Doctor and Susan were put in in the Daleks. It makes sense. So, I was going to say, some nice continuity of design. And at this point, I did, did anyone else notice they the, the Daleks at this point just start gliding around in circles for no good reason? No? That's just, that just me? <sighs> Maybe I, mean... I was a little too critical of the direction here, but... I was like, why Why are they all just gliding around in circles? It, it makes... There's no narrative reason for it. What else are the dogs right? going to do? Just sit there? I I think the, the, the problem I had was this... You know, given how good those location shots were versus the studio scenes, it's just so jarring to me. And I'm just sitting there thinking, how is this possibly the same director? So Ian carries that large wooden pole, so Ian is apparently very, very strong, to block the shaft. All right, is that all he does? Yes. Okay, great. What I really wanted to talk about is, so the doctor is, you know, interacting with with Susan and David, and he makes a comment about, don't stop and pick daisies on the way. And I'm just like, doctor, just because that you can tell that they're kind of have a thing for each other, doesn't mean that they're going to jeopardize things by, like, smelling the flowers. So just get over yourself, Doctor. Let Susan have her thing. And also the fact that someone tried to call the Doctor Doc. <laughs> that was a good scene. <laughs> <laughs> that was wonderful. And he was like, yeah, no. Don't call me Doc. So once we get the Doctor into the control room, we get that really, really cool shot this is one thing i will give richard mark and kudos for where we get the dalek eye view as it's approaching the control room and the doctor just stands there defiantly i thought that was so is awesome. this the same dalek who has different vocal processing that sounds a lot more like the modern dalek noise because there's a a marked change between what we've been hearing and this one yeah they're, they're still finding their voice and spoiler for a later serial, but the next time we see the Daleks, we get my favorite one of all, which is the stupid Dalek who can't do math. <laughs> a Derlick, <laughs> if you will. I'm like, we haven't already gotten a stupid Dalek? Oh, no, no, Julie, you'll see how magnificent this one is. I'll have to reuse that joke when it comes up. Okay, anyway. So we have the, we have the Dalek coming through and the stock point of view. And we have Barbara giving orders to the Roboman. <laughs> it was the best and then the doctor had to like overtake i was like no doctor let her continue what she's doing it's great so we get a nice riot scene as they all leave the mines i actually really like those we're back on location for those scenes and we see people throwing daleks around which you just wouldn't get in modern who because force fields and crap like that and it's just magnificent it, it feels like such a triumphant end to it Live by the Roboman, die by the Roboman. Exactly. And we get a volcanic eruption in England. It's just so out there as an ending, and I really love it. 
So we head back to London and we hear church bells for the first time in X number of years. And the doctor's there just being like, just the beginning, just the beginning. And it's wonderful. Um, anyway, we want to talk about the scene. Uh, so the doctor goes to hug her and he is completely lost to words. Like to me, even though he hadn't, you know, this is outside of the TARDIS. He hasn't given her any indication that of what's about to happen. It's like he knows it's the last time he's going to hug her. And then he goes into the TARDIS Can and we start getting scenes between David and Susan. Can we talk about the fact that he leaves her with a broken shoe and doesn't leave her a new pair of shoes? Just saying. That's didn't, a bit he, rude. didn't he take her broken shoe with him so she had one shoe? <laughs> I think I'm, he I'm might pretty have, certain actually. he stole her shoe and didn't replace it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're making fun of this, but I think we're we're kind of overlooking it a little bit because Susan is actually making a little bit of a tough choice here. Did she ever officially make Susan. a decision? It seems like both. It seems like the doctor yeah. made the decision for. It's like they give this opportunity for this character to have agency. They end on a note where she's like, "I'm gonna." you know s step out of my grandfather's you know control and it's like he took the choice away from her in fact she did make it. a decision and that was to not stay with david and and the doctor's just like nah yes it, yeah i i don't know if that's entirely true though because i think she was at a point where she literally could not choose um mm. so i think that you say that he took it away, but I don't think it was necessarily that she wanted to leave David. I think she legitimately wasn't sure. I think she could have made a choice given time, but the the doctor decided not to give her that time. See, this is how I, I was thinking about this, and they had hinted at this before. And I think this would have been the better way of doing it is that in previous episodes, there had been times where Susan felt she had a duty of care for the doctor because it was her grandfather. Mm -hmm. They did not touch that at all. If they added that element of like, it seems like they don't really touch on it at all in this episode. It's more like, I want to be with my family instead of like, my grandfather's old. I need to take I care of him. I thought she did say that. Am I wrong? Because I, I think I remember her mentioning my grandfather's getting very old. It's like everything that happened before that final scene was just her having that, you know, being set up with David and, and stepping out. It was, there was no like, well, my grandfather is an old man. I need to take care of him. Yes and no. Because again, there's, there's a few things to think about. Well, yes, he's a little bit older and things like that. I think Barbara is also understanding that she is a woman and she has she she should have her own opinions and her own agency. So I think she's kind of learning that piece of when to let go of what her previous, you know, thoughts were to what she can do for the future. So I think I just think that they condensed it so much that they didn't really give it enough time to get that across. 
But I think that's essentially how we kind of ha- have to look at it because, you know, Susan can't stay with the doctor the whole whole time. Like, yes, it's her grandfather, but she shouldn't be expected to just stay with him until the end of time. I think from a narrative perspective, they need to not be together. You're right. As a person who I haven't watched all of Classic Who, but I am familiar with the new Who, so yes, I know that the Doctor is a Time Lord, and if, in theory, Susan is the granddaughter of a Time Lord, that she should be a Time Lord as well. So how does this relationship with David work? Good question. <laughs> and it's only a good question, right? There's no, there's it's, no answer. It's only problematic looking back on it now. From things that happened later. Okay. That's fair. I'm okay with it. It's fine. I do want to point out after we get over that and, you know, we've said goodbye and all that, that final shot where it trans, you know, transitions into space. I actually really enjoyed that. Oh yeah. Oh, it's good. I wanted to touch on the doctor's, one day I shall come back speech because that we used to the doctor having a lot of epic speeches in modern who, but I mean, as I think you're seeing, there aren't a huge number, you know, it's not like every story we get some overblown epic speech. And to me, this is the first iconic speech we have in the show. And it's one that will be repeated later. And it still to this day sends a bit of a shiver down my spine. And with that, we are done with the Susan era and we are done with the David Whittaker era. So, the Susan freakout counts. Julie. So, I am fairly positive that we wanted to make sure that Susan had over 50 dramatic moments before she was done. For this serial, she had seven freakout moments. Nice. Wow. And predominantly, most of them were in episode four. She had four in episode four. So she had a lot in one episode. So she had seven overall throughout the serial. And since it's her final episode, I'll go ahead and give the rest of it. That means overall she had 55. And how many total episodes? 52. She did it. She did it. (laughs) One per episode. She did it. Wow. She absolutely did. So the final Susan freakout count is 55. While I've given her a lot of grief about being kind of that freakout moment, it was no fault of the actress. I wish they had given her more because in those moments where they gave her something to work with, she did a really good job. So the Ian murder count this week. (laughs) Honestly, it's been a little while since we had an Ian murder. I think the last time we counted one was in the Aztecs. And we get two in this one because he he kills a Roberman and he uh, kills the Slither, which I believe brings us to a a show total so far, unless I'm forgetting one, of seven. All right, so let's let's vote. We will start with Don. I freaking love this. It has (laughs) a few cheesy moments. There's a few slow bits, but at, at no point... Did I get bored or want to stop watching? There were things that were super cheesy and made me laugh out loud. Even the Slither, the Daleks, just batshit insane plan. All of it. (laughs) It's great. I am taking off 
slight amount simply because of a little bit of cheese and the lack of sex pants. So I'm giving it nine out of ten <laughs> broken, stolen shoes. Ooh. <gasps> Julie. Why did you have to bring the sex pants into I have to this? bring sex pants into everything. It's a... <laughs> we passed the Bechdel test more than once, which is phenomenal. I don't think we've done that actually within Doctor Who thus far. Other than episode five, everything had really good direction. It had a really good speed and it was always... What's next? What's next? What's next? Um, episode five had a little bit of that filler, but I don't think it was enough to overtract from everything else. So I will give it a 8.5 out of 10. Marvelous. Riley, over to you, sir. I mean, it's a, it's a classic. I mean, it's it's a good Dalek story. I mean, everyone that enjoys Doctor Who loves a, a, a good Dalek story. You know, it moves pretty good. And like all... Like, if you have a great science fiction villain, eventually you have to have them invading Earth. It's just part of the rules. You have to have that, and it's enjoyable. It's fun. It's silly. At the end of the day, like, the exact reasons behind the plan don't really make much sense. But uh, it's fun. It's enjoyable. It's It does have a little bit of bloat toward the end, but not nearly as bad as other serials. So I will give it 8 out of 10 baby alligators. And finally, I mean, I'm with everyone else. I really enjoyed this one. For me, its major falling down point is the huge gulf in quality between the the location shooting and the, the studio scenes. Otherwise, I think in terms of plot, in terms of keeping it moving, keeping it exciting, it does a really, really great job. And I'm with Julie on this one. This one, for me, is eight and a half slaps with a fish. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we say goodbye to two faces that we have one face we've got used to seeing on screen almost every episode and one face that was behind the scenes so obviously caroline ford has left the show and this was also david whitaker's final story as story editor so he was obviously a huge influence in the establishment of the show and getting its first season a bit going and establishing the characters and the direction he hired Terry Nation and, and so on. So huge, huge influence. We will see him back. He will come and write a few stories here and there. Obviously, from a, an on-screen perspective, Susan leaving is, is the biggest one. So we said we'd come back and talk a little about our favorite Susan moments. So considering how we've already discussed how, how she was written, she didn't really get a chance to really do much other than express shock or terror I really enjoyed her chance to be creepy and sneaky and edge of destruction. She played it so well in scenes that she didn't even have lines and where she's like sneaking around in the background. It was so enjoyable and it was so much fun. And I, I was really happy to see uh, Caroline Ford get a chance to do something. It was completely like really the furthest out of character for the character of Susan. You know, seeing her around there, like holding the scissors, it's just, it's just really nice. I agree with Riley. It's, it's Edge of Destruction. They gave her something to do, and she was amazing at it. And it gave us a funny episode title. So, hands down, Edge of Destruction. <laughs> Julie, any favorite Susan moments? I'll actually go with uh, Marco Polo 
which again, I know we're all sad that we don't actually get true visuals of that other than anything we've been able to get. But her and Pink Cho, I really love their interaction because they're the closest in age to each other. And so that interaction of one who is in that mindset of I have to marry who I have to marry just because of what others tell me to versus the I want to marry because of something else, because of love from Susan. So I I really enjoyed those interactions because we got to see that one-on-one interaction of someone of the same age because Susan didn't get a lot of interaction with people who are also teenagers, which I thought was very, very unfortunate for her because since they didn't know how to write her character, uh, they didn't give her a lot to work with. I think maybe since they didn't know how to write her, they probably didn't know how to write other teenagers for the most part. And you're right, Marco Polo pulls that off very, very well with Ping Cho. So my first one is An Unearthly Child, her very first appearance. She's mysterious, she's a bit weird. She draws the audience in, what's going What's going on with this girl? Why is she so strange? And then the other one is, actually, the one thing I would say is really good about the Sensorites is the way they portray Susan. All the way through, they actually have her being a good character. To Julie's point, it's one of those things where I, I really feel like Carol Ann Ford was doing the best she could with the material that she was given. As, as we said earlier, it's one of the reasons she left was she was so fed up with the material she was getting. Alas, poor Susan. Dear listener, join us next time when we will be discussing The Rescue. Have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Filipek, Riley Shrek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Middle School of the Daleks, was recorded on Thursday, March the 14th, 2019. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on your preferred podcasting app. And always remember that the best way of defeating Daleks is with a destruction derby in a truck. <laughs>